Welcome to today's episode on Life in the Front Office. I'm your host, Jake Hirschman, and excited for today's guest with Mark Gress, partner at Prodigy Search. And we're going to dive into a little bit of uh, the executive search and recruiting side of sports and you know, ultimately, uh, what what does being an executive uh, recruiter or or search firm mean uh, within the industry? And and ultimately, what skill sets help you in uh, that area of the business and how it's relatable to a lot of other parts of the industry that you just may not think about. So, Mark, without further ado, welcome to the podcast. Excited for it. Thank you. Proud of me, Jake. So. One would ask, uh, partner at Prodigy Search, what does that mean, right? Um, <laughs> titles, titles seem to be kind of you know everything within sports and, and entertainment, and logos and and whatnot. So, what, what's a partner and kind of what's your role within the search firm? I originally uh, joined Prodigy in uh, January of 2015 as a director of recruiting, and, and the roles just evolved, and my, my path there evolved to uh, to where our founder and CEO approached me last year and talked to me about uh, becoming a partner of the firm. But but the, the reality of the day-to-day is that a fair amount of it has remained the same in as much that I'm still recruiting every day. I'm still working on uh, open positions that we're looking to fill for, for organizations. Uh, I still have responsibilities that include bringing new searches to our firm. So new business development. So most of my duties and responsibilities would be the same as if you were to call me an executive search recruiter, executive recruiter, um, I guess partner just indicates the uh, kind of the position I hold within the company, but um, as a small business, right? It's not, a, I'm a partner of a thousand person firm where I'm a partner of a, you know, roughly 10 person boutique agency. So you just mentioned 10 people. I mean, that's, you guys got to be a pretty close knit group. Uh, that's if one person's not working well together, right? I mean, that's, you guys got to have a pretty strong culture. Yeah, it's a well-oiled machine. I, I think one of the things that we and, and listen, there's a certain part of that that's ac- accountability. But I think we have a lot of people on staff, if not everybody. I would argue, is very intrinsically motivated. I don't think it. And not that we don't reward people with, with the typical reward systems, right? Uh, whether that be promotions, compensation, uh, and everything in between, as if we were in any other area of a sports organization where there there are rewards. But I think we have people that are motivated internally, and and people that simply want to do the best. And again, we I think. Every product we do, and this is kind of the beauty of being a boutique firm, I guess, to a certain extent, is more than one person's working on it. Not that there isn't a lead or somebody taking ownership of it, but by and large, even up to our CEO, right? When our CEO works on a project, he generally has one or two people working with him. So nobody's in a silo. No, that's great. Uh, teamwork Teamwork makes a dream work, as some like to say. Um, all right. So you mentioned you, you got to Prodigy in 2015. I mean, walk us through quickly kind of your career path, how you got into recruiting and, and whatnot. Sure. Very briefly. Um, I, I guess I have two different uh, paths. I'll, I'll tell you the recruiting angle. Um, I was the first uh, undergraduate uh, to complete their degree in sport management from Drexel, which again, makes me sound old on the surface. And when people see me at, at an event and I say that, or if I'm in a classroom and I say that they see the gray beard, that's genetics and that's, you know, that's a mortgage. That's not that I'm that, I'm that <laughs> old. Um, that, so, so I was the first to complete the degree in sport management from Drexel uh, University in Philadelphia. And, and truthfully, during my time there and then even after graduation, I'd worked in, in pro sports with the Philadelphia Eagles. I worked in college athletics with Drexel's athletic department. But 
I started in high school. I was working at an indoor tennis facility. And by the way, I know I never played tennis in my life, but it was just a job. Right. And, and that, that yeah. what I think a light bulb went off in my head, actually, at that time, even as a 17 year old, I'm like, well, I can get paid to work in like this setting, whether that be even as a caddy at a golf, whatever that is. I was like, OK, I can make money working in something that I think other people come to do and enjoy. Right. Recreation for them. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, honestly, upon graduation, um, got my first start in the industry uh, with, with one of Prodigy's competitors. And you know, one of the things that I look back on to that day and was hired by uh, by somebody you and I both know extremely well, Dan Rossetti. And, um, I, and I recall that interview and, and the interview process very vividly for some reason. Um, and, and I remember the conversation coming up of either why I was qualified or why I was interested. And truthfully, at that time, the, the interesting part was I just wanted to get started in sports. I didn't know that executive search was a career path in sports i'll, I'll be very blunt with you um and and then the second part of that was why can why do i think i could do that job and i i frankly had to sell myself through multiple interviews of why i thought some of the things i had done throughout my undergraduate degree and and the jobs i had had um translated over um but really just two different stints in executive search uh and and spent three years at that firm and five years uh now more than five years at prodigy but in between um, veered off course just slightly, um, spent six years in higher education and my time in higher education, uh, you and I have a lot of great colleagues that, that have worked in that space. Um, you, uh, Andy Dolich being one, Jim Kaler, uh, Bill Sutton, a lot of people that are still, you know, have practical application to our industry. And that's what I did for six years at, at both Drexel and a small school in Philadelphia area. Arcadia University, where um, I was still involved in the sports industry. I was still advising students, alumni um, in the sports industry. I was still teaching for the last seven years, uh, eight years or so. I've been teaching uh, as an adjunct in sports. So I was higher education for six years, and the other majority of my career has been in, in an executive search. Well, and, and from an executive search standpoint, you know, one would probably ask, well, what, what kind of skill sets do you need to be in the executive search, you know, world? And and to your point about, um, you know, learning a, about what a career in executive search could be, it's also evolving, right? It's, it's, you know, it's evolved over the last, you know, 10 years, we'll call it, of what does that mean for organizations as organizations have expanded, right? Um, I, I think if we, if Andy was on the podcast, he'd talk about when he first started, you know, the, the size of the front offices and, Sure. Um, you know, Fred the same way as, you know, they were, you know, 12, 15, 20 people. And now we're, we're in the hundreds and, and into the thousands in some respects. So uh, how does that changed over the last, you know, somewhat years and, and what skill sets do you need if you wanted to get started in that space now? Yeah, I'll start there. Um, I, you know, I think with, with the, um, when we hire, right. And, and even when we've looked at, uh, I look back at that when I joined the other agency and when we, when we hire interns or full-time recruiters, um, I talk about transferable skills and I, and I do think sales is one of them, right. I mean, and, and, and truthfully coming out of college, I had two or three job offers. Um, and, and the job I took was not the one in sales, at least I thought, right. So the other ones were in group sales for a minor league baseball team. There was another job selling, um, the very entry level job selling partnerships for a, a sports publication. And I honestly, the, it, it scared the hell out of me. The, the idea of, you know, be picking up the phone, doing, you know, not that I would be knocking on doors, but door to door, you know, any, any in-person pitching. I mean, I just didn't, didn't appeal to me at all. Right. And, and, and truthfully, maybe that was a family thing, right? Not many salespeople in my family, although now I've come to learn that they're, they are selling. Right. So what I learned is that recruiting is selling right in some way, shape or form. Um, you know, half of my job, let's just say if there's two halves, one half of it is 
when I'm on the phone with people, when I'm Skyping or meeting them in person and I'm pitching them on a job, um, them leaving their current position, um, moving their family, uh, uprooting their kids from school, uh, whatever it is, I'm selling them on an opportunity, on a, on a, on a position, on an ownership group, uh, on a new location, a new city, whatever that is. Um, I'm selling every day when I make those calls, and so is our team. Even though we don't think we're selling, we're not selling a ticket or a widget or whatever it is, we're still selling. Um, so, so that was the first thing that came to my mind. And, and listen, the other part of the job, the other fifty percent, is when I'm selling a potential client on why they should use Prodigy. I'm having to pitch them on our services, right? And and and, and it's intangible, right? A, a lot of what we do, um, truthfully, is intangible in executive search. So I'm selling them on the services we provide as recruiters. Um, but you talked about the changes over the years. Um, I'll, I'll think about back when we started, you know, the power of the uh, of what's available online. And I'll just use LinkedIn by way of example. Like I, we, I was one of the early users and my team. And again, I mentioned Dan Rossetti. We, we were some of the early adopters of, of LinkedIn, you know, 15, 18 years ago, um, not to the power and to the reach it has now, but talk about the evolution in executive search. That's one thing to help helps us make it do our job a lot better. Um, and not the only thing uh, that's for sure, but um the evolution of executive search, though, I'll be very blunt with you, the competition. You know, there was once, you know, two or three firms. There's seven, ten firms now that are that are all doing executive search in some way, shape, or form, whether that's pro or college or some variation thereof. And so the competition among search firms is is much different now than it was, you know, 10 or even 20 years ago. Um, you know, I, I think one of the things that that's forced us to do is be better, uh, but also be more versatile. So Andy, I think Andy would tell you, uh, and I think others would observe is the roles we used to recruit for are still roles we recruit for now, but now we recruit for different roles that didn't exist back then. Um, it was always heavily weighted towards sales and marketing and still is right. We ticket, ticket sales, digital sales, sponsorship sales, and all forms of, of marketing, branding, digital, um, communications, PR. I mean, sales marketing still will always dominate the searches we do, but now all of a sudden we've started to recruit for positions in, in analytics, in venue security, um, esports. We've done about five or six esports searches. And if you had asked my 60 plus year old CEO, if we, if he ever thought we would be doing, uh, esports searches, you know, I think he'd laugh. And so, the types of searches and types of positions um, is new that didn't exist years ago, but also the types of organizations, Topgolf. Like we, I never recruited for a company like Topgolf years ago because they didn't exist. Um, you know, and there's other organizations that just didn't exist years ago, so we wouldn't have done work for them. But now, um, you know, and even uh, technology companies, Sports Digita or Ticket Manager, I mean, companies that haven't been around for 20, 30 years that now all of a sudden we would do recruiting projects for that we didn't, you know, or, you know 20 years ago. Well, and in one way uh, or another, you know, that's, that's in a sense, uh, talent identification, right? It's opportunity identification. Um, I, I, it's funny, I, having gone through the, the baseball world and, um, you know, having played and coached and, and done a, a, sh- a real short stint on, on the player development scouting side, you realize that it's just a different landscape, yep. right? It's the same skill sets, um, you know, sure is sitting at a baseball game uh, trying to evaluate players a little bit different than picking up the phone and, and having a, a sales call. Yeah. But at the end of the day, the, the ultimate, um, you know, foundation of what you're doing is you're trying to identify talent. You're trying to identify opportunity. You're trying to assess where it can fit and, and where the opportunity lies. Uh, you're, you're trying to project what it can and can't be. Right. Uh, in terms of value or, or partnership or what, you know, whatever it might be. Um, and then ultimately make some sort of decision. And that's in, to your point, the, the selling aspect. Right. If, you, if you're 
if you're scouting and you've got a player that you mm-hmm. really, really like, well, you not, not only do you have to sell it internally, right? Um, you've got to get buy-in from, from the staff around you that, that see the same thing that you're doing uh, or, or seeing. Uh, then you've got to compete with the other 31 teams. Absolutely. Right. So there's 31 other organizations that might see the same thing. And all of a sudden they're going to go, Hey, we'll pay this guy a little bit more. Right. Um, and I'm sure you see the same thing Absolutely. within the recruiting world is, um, you know, there might be a great prospect that that's within your network that is flourishing and moving from one place to the next and, and growing up the ranks. But there's, there's other search firms or people that they know or, uh, opportunities that they might get approached by that might pay them more or, or whatever the case might be. So how do you kind of operate within, within that landscape of, um, uh, you know, adapting to, like you were saying, the changes, right? So adapting to what's, what's coming, uh, the new top golfs, right? There's, there's drive shack now, which is another company mm-hmm. that's in that same space. There's, um, all sorts of agencies now, right? I mean, the, the, the plethora of agencies that exist uh, as well. So, you know, as you're adapting, um, who are some of the people that you rely on in the industry uh, or, or types of people, you know, within, whether it's scouting, whether it's sales, whether it's sponsorships to kind of pick their brain on how they're adjusting and how they're uh, growing their skill sets to, to, to similar to similarity in which you can do as well. Yeah. Sometimes it's interesting. I think sometimes it's, it's, it's paying it. It's, it's not being like, you know, read the sports business journal, read any publication and our team needs to always be educating themselves. And, and, and again, but also that can be on what other, other avenues makes it. I mean, tw- following certain people on Twitter to say, okay, what's coming next, right? What's um, what types of companies are, you know, drone racing leagues coming along. Okay. How can we, maybe we, maybe we need to help an organization like that as they grow um i you know i mentioned twitter you know this morning i saw uh, joe favorito tweeted about um a position that might come out of uh, a result of certain things that happen um you know during during the course of uh, a country you know um adapting to situations like we're currently experiencing a director of fan assurance right and, and i, I kind of look at that and we'll say well what types of jobs are you know exist now and how will they change some of it is just us paying attention to what's going on outside of in other industries as well you know so as recruiters there's recruiters in it and healthcare finance etc and, and almost just saying what are other sectors doing what are they doing in media what are they doing in entertainment uh how will that change what we do in our job um but the competition is a very fascinating comment you made earlier because we're all going after a lot of the same talent right and we like to think we are under uncovering people that nobody else knows about but i think a lot of our um a lot of how we get over that hump is, is, is truthfully just communicating expectations to candidates, um, but also understanding their concerns and then, but then communicating that back to a client of ours, because you're right. I mean, we, we might speak with uh, an active job seeker, you know, whether that be during a, a recession or whatever might be going on in our world. And, and there's a lot of candidates out there and they're all calling the same firms, by the way, right. They're, I like to think we're, they're only mm-hmm. calling ours, but, um, but, but communicating with them about how their search is going, what they're looking and, and, and timing, right. And then communicating that back to our client to say, listen, this person has two other job offers. We can't let them slide. Um, and, and again, hoping that everything is on the up and up that you're getting the right compensation numbers for them, the right concerns or lack of concerns about relocation, you know, whatever that is. Um, because you're right, it's, it's the competition for the same candidates for a very few number of jobs is something that we see at certain waves throughout, throughout the year or throughout certain periods of time. Um, but it's a great question because we, we do need to pay attention to who, you know, who the new candidates are, but also where the new jobs are coming from, because that that's, and that's every day. I mean, like I said, it's as crazy as it sounds, 
following things on Twitter and LinkedIn, reading as many in e you know publications because we need to learn about esports, right? Read sports techie, listen to your podcast. I mean, just so we hear from people and say, oh, I didn't think that position existed. Now maybe we can recruit for that. Yeah, no doubt, and and that goes the same for for students that are graduating, right? I mean, it's the same it's the same concept. They've got to track the trends to understand what's out there. I mean, the um, you know, depending on how things shake out and, uh, you know, what happens to fans consuming content, engaging differently, you know, is ticket sales going to be, um, more important, less important. Sure. I mean, you, you kind of have to track those trends, right. And, and understand that, um, things are evolving probably faster than ever. Right. You think about, um, would love to get your kind of your thoughts on this is, uh, and you think about the exponential change, right. Um, things that have changed between 2015 and now mm -hmm. versus things that changed from 2010 to 2015 and 2005 to 2010, right? The rate of exponential change has increased so much that what can we expect from, you know, 2020 to 2025? Like where, where, where do you think we're going to be in the world of um, recruiting? And, you know, it, it does, you know, now that we're in this space, um, of working remotely and working from home, does that change how, how people um, view, you know, opportunities, right, as well? Yeah, that part is, is interesting to follow, especially that, that last piece, because we, people will joke, and I, I laugh because I think you have to take some humor in it, which is, you know, finding out which meetings uh, you know, could have really been emails, right, but also who who is able to work from home and how critical it is to be in an office setting. Um, but again, that, you know, to your point where, where we are in the next few months, perhaps be, before we look at the next few years is looking at companies that are going to innovate during this time or companies that could see growth during times like this, if this ever occurs again, which is, you know, why not go try to find a job at zoom or Slack, right? I mean, go apply for jobs there because they're companies that are hiring right now, right? Aside from what we all assume, right? Which is healthcare, et cetera. But people look at, I mean, listen, we've considered it, right? We go, well, zoom's got a ton of, positions and Slack's got a ton. I mean, same thing, Skype and, you know, all these companies that are offering the opportunities for people uh, to, to work remotely and work from home, communicate effectively and not have too much of a business drop off. Um, you know, in terms of the next few years, who knows? I mean, you're right. Could change the way people sell tickets, could change the way. I think it's fascinating people, how they are going to consume, like literally consume uh, concessions, right? Not just consume content, you know, on TV, on their phone or on their iPad, um, et cetera, but going to a sporting event and how you're going to either pay for, be served food, be served drink and, um, you know, and, and the anxiety that might exist there, um, but also security, right? We thought something like, um, you know, the, the pre-checks and the clear, you know, getting into that we thought that was pretty cool and, and pretty much a big deal, you know, maybe last year or five years ago. Well, what the heck's going to a sporting event going to be like in the next few months or next few years, if, you, if you're allowed to go at all, by the way? <laughs> right, right, exactly. Um, let's pivot real quick as, as we kind of shift towards the second half. And um, I, I want to talk about, you know, the, the, we, we, we hit on the transferable skill sets earlier uh, of sales, but you know, from a, um, from a recruiting perspective, you know, and the skill sets that um, students need to have coming out of school for those entry-level positions, and then also those that are in, it, in the industry kind of developing um, a variety or, or diversification of skill sets um, to make a jump, make a lateral move, whatever it might be. What are some of the things and trends that you're seeing from a skill set perspective that are, that are being sought out as valuable? Um, and then, you know, what are, what are some of the things that um, people 
are, you know, that diamond in the rough, like what do they have? Yeah. Great question. I, I think, um, the, the, I mean, and if you want to break it down, right, the, the soft and the hard, right, the soft and soft skills and hard skills and, and being able to have a nice balance of the two and not being so heavily weighted towards one over the other. And, you know, I think about people on our staff, right, that, you know, we have we have people that I mentioned, our CEO, down to people that are, are 23, 24 years old, and, and it's a wide range of staff members. And think about the people that we've kept on or that we've hired, we, they were an intern, we brought them back, and the reasons we did so I would argue we're, we're just that we're a mix of hard and soft skills. And, and maybe today it's different than it was uh, maybe even years ago, but I think about hard skills of, you know, there still are, you know, I, I still like to see technological proficiencies, right. And that, that's not just your standard issue. You know, again, if I see you on a resume right now that you're good at, you know, Word, Excel and PowerPoint, I'll kind of laugh that off a little bit, but no, beyond that, right. Be, the ability to research, right. The ability to, um, to, to dig for information and, and find information, um, problem solving skills, um, I don't think, I think sometimes people poo poo multitasking and, and I don't, I'm not saying still being able to master all skills or all tasks at one time, but being able to be, you know, more than just a one track mind. So I think there's a, a little bit of soft and hard skill situation going on there. Um, we still value communication skills and that's verbal and written. And I still think we, we can't ignore the written, especially nowadays, um, you know, the, the ability to communicate via email um, when you're putting together a deck, whatever that is, the written skills are still critical um, as much as we still might you know, text nowadays versus maybe even email I mean, on our side, right? On, when we communicate with candidates for jobs, we still, we started to change over to text because people like communicate that way, but we still need to communicate in a professional manner via text. We can't use short, you know, short term, short code or, or, or emojis. I mean, we still need to communicate whatever the medium is. Um, but verbal communication nowadays is still critical to Jake. And, and we talk about working from home or so if you're on Skype or, or you're using whatever other systems you're using, um, Slack, et cetera. When I'm on Slack with, with industry practitioners on Slack channels that I've been invited to, where I'm internally communicating with people on Slack, I still need to communicate in a professional way. And if I'm on a video conference, Zoom call with, with my CEO, I still need to you know, make sure that I'm dressing the part I'm communicating in an effective way verbally. So I still think there's that mix of, of hard and soft skills. But you talking about sales, I still think having the ability to sell anything, right? My wife's a CPA. And if you were to ask her if she does anything in sales, you know, she would probably laugh at you. And she hates everything about sales. But she needs to sell, you know, clients on why they should use her services, right? And why they should pay um, certain fees for, for their accounting practices. But she also needs to go to her partner of her firm and, and sell them on why she thinks she did a, cer you know, a certain audit the right way or a certain you know, tax return the, the right way and why the numbers match up. Right? I mean, there's internal selling. So I think that applies. You're selling even if you're in PR, right? So I still think um, growing and adapting those skills is critical. Like, I'm a continuing education guy, right? So, um, you know, not just formally in a university setting, but two weeks ago, I sat in a webinar that was on ticket sales just because I was I was I want to listen. In. How are people in ticket sales doing their job right now? And I'd love to learn what they're saying, how they're doing, because I think it applies to what I'm doing and saying. Yeah, no, you couldn't have said any better. I, and I think the continuing um, we were I was on a we had an episode uh, with John Allgood from sure. Temple University. And, and at the very end. Uh, I made up LLL, lifelong learner. And uh, I was like, huh, made that up on the spot, but it actually makes a lot of sense. I mean, like, if, if you want, you know, sports is an industry of acronyms, like, sure. let's be real, right? So um, LLL, uh, you know, as you continue to be a lifelong learner, right? What is, I mean, when, when you're looking at the, um, you know, you mentioned, you, you know, you have younger kids, like, you've got kind of this generation that's coming up that are totally different than even 
um, the generation that's that's kind of the young and upcoming workforce now, which is different than the you know managerial level and then the executive level. So there's so many differentiations between the different generations right now. How do you um, see kind of look at the end of the day? A lot of the time, uh, from a job perspective, it's a culture fit. Too, yeah. Right. So. Um, what are you looking at from a generational difference perspective uh, and then a culture fit perspective as you're, you know, talking to, to different. Um, well, I mean, listen, great question and, and a little bit of a loaded one too, because I think there's, you know, again, maybe does a tie. I'm not sure your question entirely ties back to the millennial thing, but the, the millennial thing first came to my mind, honestly, is, is I think one of the strengths I, and, and maybe my staff and my team would laugh at this, but I think one of the strengths I have as an employee at my company is, being able to communicate between the non-millennials and millennials and, and bridging that gap, which is, it sounds ridiculous, right? Because it's not like we're, we're all humans and we do have a good rapport and we all agree. We are a great culture, but I think sometimes uh, the communication between the two and ex- communicating expectations, et cetera. Um, but you mentioned my kids, right? So I'll give you an example. Um, and I, I had to adapt and adjust to this too. I think back to my parents and how they told me to do certain things, right? Tying my shoes, right? So, uh, my my oldest son, who's still young, but I, you know, we talk about tying his shoes and his sneakers and working on that and practicing it every day, trying to get better, right? And and the other day I realized something. I said, "Me and you are going to sit down and we're going to watch a YouTube clip on your cell phone." And by the way, he has a cell phone, he has a cell phone of mine from like five years ago. He can't do anything other than go on the internet. He can't text anybody, call anybody. But we sat down on his phone together. And I said, "Let's get a couple pairs of your sneakers out." And let's find a couple of videos that you want to watch on how to tie your shoes. And we'll practice, again, pretty much what I've been teaching him, by the way, uh, for the last few months. But, again, if he likes watching YouTube videos on on sports, on wrestling, and all these other things. But let's find one on tying your shoes. And we kind of learned that way, right? And uh, if he, if you know, if I had handed him a book on how to tie your shoes, he would have probably thrown it on the ground and, and been like, what is this thing? So um, I think – you know, my point is, though, I think we've learned um, that everybody on our team, and I think, I hope, you know, as an industry, what we've got, people learn in different ways. People like to be educated in different ways, uh, motivated in different ways. And it's not all, again, not everybody will sit down and listen to podcasts all day, every, every day. Not everybody also will love to read cover to cover of, of a book every day. And that's not how they're going to learn a, a lesson or, or, or read it. But my boss knows that if he gives me a book on some sort of topic, right, again, even if it's something so elementary like the coffee bean or if it's something, you know, much, you know, longer and intense and uh, it, it's a you know bigger lesson type of thing. He, goes, he knows I'm going to read it, right? But if he gives it to our other staff members, I'm not saying they won't read it, but they'll kind of go at their own pace and they'll figure it out as they go, right? And um, you know, and if they, they but they might learn through ten different webinars or they'll read you know they'll read an article on LinkedIn and and, and they'll share it with everybody, right? So it it varies. Truthfully, I got my master's degree online, Jake, and. And I think about when I got it, I got just got married, just bought a house, and my wife and I were uh, planning on having a, a, a son. And I don't think I, you know, under normal circumstances, recommend anybody get their master's degree while they have 10 different things going on in their life. But I online, <laughs> right? And I, I was scared out of my mind to get my master's degree online. I was like, I need to be in a classroom setting. I need to have a professor that I can meet and shake their hand. And I need to be able to hand my assignments in in person. Like, I guess you kind of have to figure it out and adapt a little bit. And and, and, and you're right. I, lifelong learning isn't just, and again, not that I'm disrespecting Temple and John's program or even my alma mater, Drexel. Sometimes for some people it is getting, you know, a master's degree. Sometimes it's a certificate that takes me a, a few hours, right? And other times it's just reading a bunch of articles and saying, okay, great, I'm educated on it. I know how to do X. Right. Well, and it's, and to your point, everyone learns differently. And then everyone's got a different career path, right? We just, you know, we, we hit on yours earlier of going through the higher education uh, realm and then into, you know, executive uh, search and, and um, you know, 
from a perspective of, you know, how to manage um, your career, what is some of the advice that you give to your uh, clients? Because for those who are, you know, maybe new to a search firm, right? Or they get a call from a search firm and they go, how, how, like, what does this mean? How do I handle this? Uh, does this mean that there's going to be a job in two months, six months, five years? I mean, it, right. Yeah. These relationships you cultivate, you, you, you mentioned earlier in the, in the podcast, like you, you might call people and it's just not the right yeah. time. It's not the right location. It's not the right pay, whatever it might be, but you're not going to say, Oh, well, screw you. Um, yeah. I'm not talking mm-hmm. to you right? Because you're not a good fit for this role. It's, it's continuing that relationship to understand that client, just like you would any other client in sponsorships or premium sales or ticket sales or whatever to, to understand their yeah. needs, right? So uh, as you look at um, what, what the differences are, you know, among um, prospective clients and and how they approach the executive mm-hmm. search process what is some of the advice that you give from a career perspective and then also just kind of how to handle the whole executive search process yeah the candidates are 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 our lifeblood right and um we're a retained firm like many of our competitors are in that we're retained and hired by the employers that are doing the hiring but we have to have conversations with the candidate pool every single day, whether it's active or passive job seekers, whether they're unemployed, they're, they're or gainfully employed, and they're happy. Um, we should be having those dialogue again, ideally over the phone, but email, text, any other communicate LinkedIn, we need to be communicating regularly. Just again, a lot of times it's your point. It's not just, Hey, I have a job right now. And, 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 you know, I think a lot of times we are building a, a I hate to say building a database because it makes it seem like it's a technology system. We're building a data, like a mental, we're building a, a Rolodex, we're building our relationships with candidates uh, every day just by having calls and seeing how they're doing, what they're up to, um, and, and ultimately learning from them. Um, and, and I think you're right. I mean, not everybody gets called by a recruiter all day, every day. So how do you deal with them? How do you work with them? Uh, they're, they're your friends, right? They're your resources. Um, talk to every search firm you can, right? None of the search firms compete for candidates, right? No, nobody, by and large, in the sports industry, no search firm has a has relationships with candidates to where uh, they're the paying customers and we own candidates. So talk to as many search firms as you can. Uh, there's many good ones out there, and I think uh, what I hope we offer, what I what I what our claim to them is that we're transparent, we're very upfront, uh, we communicate often, um, and, but our communication, our relationship with candidates is very much more of an art than it is a science, right? And, and um, because it's not, hey, I'll check in with you every seven to 10 days or I'll email you, you know, you'll get an email from me every Monday morning at 9 a.m. with new job opportunities. It just, it just doesn't quite, quite work that way. Um, but when we work with them, think about our relationship with the client. We're an outsourced HR function of them, right? We're, we're a brand extension of a client that's doing the recruiting. So um, I had somebody recently say, hey, you know, I, I know somebody at the organization. Should I just go around you guys and reach out to them? I'd say, at some point, you might want to leverage that relationship with the client, right? But for now, work through us, you know, work through the channel because what happens is, I'll just pull back the curtain a little bit, you'll, you'll write an email or you give a call to that, to that person at the, at the client, uh, to the MBA or NHL team XY, uh, and they're going to kick back the email or phone call back to us anyway, right? So more than likely. Now, if you're a finalist and you've talked to Prodigy three, four, five times and you, you're a guy, you're our gal, and you do want to leverage that, per- fine. At that point, absolutely reach out but we're your listen we're your champion we're your agent if you want to think about us as if no other way think about us as as your agent we're your jerry mcguire we're trying to get the best 
deal for you, a win-win ideally for our client because they're paying us, but we want to try to, we want to represent you, even though we're not representing you. Um, it's, it behooves candidates to return our calls and emails, even if they're not interested or not looking respond back and say, Hey, now, now, not at this time. Um, you know, again, don't ghost us and hopefully you, we won't ghost you either. Right. So it's gotta be that relationship that we're building over time. Um, you know, I think about people that I first started talking to 18, 15, 18 years ago, and they've reemerged as candidates of mine now. And, and that's good. And I've placed them in positions, you know, despite our relationship starting a really long time ago. Um, and some of them have now become our clients, right? So placements become clients. Um, so I would say it's, it's a long-term uh, relationship and, and it's no different than any other networking advice I would give. It's mutual in that we reach out to each other when we don't need something. Right. So hopefully candidates are hearing from us when I'm celebrating their work anniversary or promotion, or I read something in the sports business journal and they just crushed a deal. They just closed a big deal. I should be texting or emailing or calling them and say, Hey, congratulations. Not, I need you to be a candidate or please hire us to do a search for you. Right. No, that's, that's some great advice and insights. And uh, I think that can be taken in, you know, a lot of different ways uh, for people who, um, you know, are at various, various levels of the industry. Uh, so let's wrap up with one last question. Um, you know, you're kind of looking looking down the road, looking ahead, and, and you're trying to think about, um, for a lot of people, right, if they're in the industry for a while, they've got a lot of contacts, right? And, you know, if you're continuing to network or you work at different places, you, you, you've kind of built this uh, Rolodex like you're talking about. But one of the struggles that, that uh, people run into is, well, how do I keep up with everyone, right? I mean, Again, technology has made it easier, but it's also yeah. made it harder uh, in the sense that, um, you know, just because you follow someone on Instagram doesn't mean you kept yeah. up with them, right? You, you, I mean, you've got to have that personal connection, personal contact, and uh, then you've got to kind of pick, okay, who are your people, yeah. right? And, and who are the ones that I really want to stay in touch with? And who's just kind of a contact in the industry that, um, you know, we might know, mutually know where each other are and that sort of thing, but we don't really have a, an in-depth relationship. Yeah. So how and what advice do you have for truly kind of staying in touch with your network, but then also building it at the same time? Yeah, I mean, listen, a, a critical, you, you talked about figuring out who your people are. And, and I've had to learn, I think what I've learned throughout my career, and, and I think this has been through bosses, mentors, colleagues, clients, um, is is that... It isn't a, it isn't always a numbers game, right? Because I, again, I I don't think about what I do and Jake, what you do and others in the industry as again, unless you literally are telemarketing. It's, it can't be telemarketing, right? So it can't be always a numbers game, right? And I've had to learn, right? When I go to a networking event or a conference, um, that I'm when I'm spending time with people, that it's genuine, that I'm trying to learn about them, that I am really building a foundation for a relationship, that I'm not trying to just collect as many business cards as possible. And I'm not saying you also can't go to those events or those dinners or those or the sports business awards or this conference and meet one person and walk away and say, well, that was that was really successful. So there, there's got to be a balance. It, it can't be I walked around to every single I think about when I was a student, when I was an undergrad and there I went to some pretty big career fairs and there was, you know, several hundred employers. And I made sure I went to ta every single table. And I was like, man, did I really I don't think I got out of that what I should have got out of that. Right. And which is I, I, I played the numbers game and I went I went down a different path, um, which is I think now it's more quality than it is quantity right so if i um, have some objectives it might be keeping in touch with certain people you know as much as i can regularly now you're right technology allows us to do that right and and linkedin allows us to do that twitter social media allows us to do that better than it had before right which is 
Like I still have a drawer at my desk that has all the business cards I've ever collected because I'm a little bit of an old school guy, right? I used to, I did used to have a Rolodex. I, the second time I had a reference on this podcast and I'm not that old, but I'm not that old. I did a Rolodex. Uh, and I used to have to spin <laughs> it to go alphabetically to the one I want to contact. And so it is, it is difficult. Um, I would say this though, and what I've learned um, uh, as well, in addition to it is a quality over quantity even if you do lose touch with people that you've, you've meant to, or you would have liked to keep in touch with, think about old high school friends, people you used to play sports with, or people that you worked with, you know, 10, 20 years ago in your career, um, that your, your next outreach back to them, it should be genuine how they're doing and, 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 and rebuilding that from scratch. Um, and again, I think about times where it might be difficult, right? Um, I mentioned, you know, w- you know, when I made a career change on my career, it was during the recession and I had to leverage my network. I was out of work for a very short period of time. And when I reached out to people, my first outreach at that time, which again, I learned from others, I didn't just know this, you know, by myself, is my outreach back to people that I lost touch with because I did eventually need their help to land a new job was making sure they were doing okay during the recession back in 2008, 2009, that they were okay, that, that they didn't lose their job. Um, you know, and again, maybe two or three conversations down the road, I would ask them or I'd let them know, Hey, listen, I, I am, I, I was laid off. I could use your help if you have, but I think rebuilding those relationships, it's not brain surgery. I think it's important that you're just not going into rebuilding those relationships for whatever reason you want to close a sponsorship deal. You want to sell them on a search. You want to sell them a ticket. It's that you're rebuilding it from a place of being genuine and wanting to know if you can help them with anything before you just go into pitch mode. Uh, and that's, I think, honestly, that's anything in life, but I had to learn that. I mean, I, I truthfully, cause I think I was worried about the same thing, Jake is I want to know everybody. I want to know thousands and thousands of people. Um, yeah, you can have a database, like you can have a CRM and that maybe that helps you keep in touch with prospects and sales leads, but it's still imperfect. You know, you have to find a little bit of a sweet spot of, of, I still think quality over quantity. Oh, love it. That's, that's fantastic. Um, you know, I, I can't, can't thank you enough for coming on the podcast. Um, certainly excited to see what the future holds with Prodigy. I know you guys are continuing to grow um, and you've got some great people there as, as, as you noted and uh, excited for, for what's to come, Mark. So appreciate it. And uh, looking forward to having you Thank you, you so much, Jake. Here. I appreciate it.